Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. There's a story of a landowner who went very early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard, and he agreed to pay them a denarius for a day's work, then he sent them off to the vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and he saw others standing around in the marketplace doing nothing, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right, so they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same. Now, in my story, he went out about five in the afternoon and he found still others standing around, all of them women. He asked them, why have you been standing around all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said. He said to them, you also go into my vineyard. So they went into the vineyard, but they found that all the best jobs had already been taken. So the foreman merely put them to work cleaning, holding coffee mornings for worthy charities, and embroidering needles. (laughs) So goes the gospel according to the disgruntled Catholic woman who to borrow a phrase from the corporate world, feels that she is knocking her head against a stained glass ceiling. Now, of course, at the end of the day, there's ultimately something not right with that interpretation, but it's not without complete truth. Uh, It's not without some legitimacy, because even in recent times, Pope Francis has spoken of the need for a more inclusive female presence in the church, and even a more capillary and incisive presence. Well, if he's calling for a greater presence in the church, it must be that at some level, the presence is not sufficient. Yeah? So while I think it's ultimately an incorrect interpretation of the situation, there must be, I think, some truth to it. And this is the question which I want to address now in this talk. What is exactly the female ecclesial vocation? And perhaps more importantly, what are the principles which we have to work by in coming to a correct correct conclusion about that. That's the task I've been given by the conference organizers, and I have to admit straight up that I am not up to the task. (laughs) Now, I know uh, five women very well, my wife and my four daughters, and the rest of you are, to be quite honest, very mysterious to me. But do not be afraid, I have a friend. He's also a man, and strangely enough, uh, he never married. He never had any sisters. His mother died when he was nine, and his one sister, actually had one sister who died before he was born, never married, no daughters. But he seems to know what is in a woman. And of course, The person I'm referring to is John Paul II. Now, I don't mean actually just those documents that he issued when he was a pope, Mulieris Dignitatum, Letter to Women in particular, but if you go, for example, to his play, The Jeweler's Shop, you will be very struck, I think, about the way he's able to get inside a woman. One of the characters in particular who's estranged from her husband, tempted to commit adultery, It's amazing how he's able to enter into her situation with with incredible sympathy. So just as Dante had Virgil to guide him around Paradiso, if you don't mind, I'll take John Paul II as my tour guide, and I think with him at hand, we might make some progress. In terms then of getting to the principles, I think we should go to Criste Fidelis Lecce, particularly paragraph 51, where I think there, at least implicitly, John Paul II lays out the two principles that have to guide the correct understanding of the female ecclesial vocation. The first principle is this, 
that in the church we can't simply make up a vocation. The church is a supernatural society with a supernatural purpose, and we are purely natural beings. We have to be supernaturalized if we're gonna have what it takes to do an ecclesial vocation, because we need to be empowered. It's not simply about permission. It's ultimately about empowerment. And unlike Prometheus, we cannot go up to the heavens, steal the fire and bring it down. As Christians, we're told to go into the city and wait, and we will be clothed from on high. Now this clothing from on high, this empowerment comes principally through the sacraments which imprint character, because sacramental character is ultimately spiritual power. And of course, therefore, for the woman, particularly the, the sacrament of baptism and the, the sacrament of confirmation, the sacrament of baptism not only empowers us, it enrolls us in a share in the threefold mission of Christ as priest, prophet, and king. Therefore, my first principle is this, and I take it directly from John Paul II, the feminine vocation in the church will orbit around our share in the priestly, prophetic, and kingly office of Christ. The second principle is this, if we're gonna talk about the vocation, the ecclesial vocation of women, we have to highlight what is specific about women. And what is specific about women, what distinguishes them from men, is fundamentally the capacity for motherhood. Now, this capacity for motherhood, I think, spawns three types of motherhood. We have natural motherhood, the one we're most uh, familiar with. We have motherhood in the spiritual order, consecrated female life. And we have what I would like to call transcendental motherhood. Now, transcendental motherhood does not entail sitting on the carpet, cross-legged, humming. It's transcendental because it transcends any state of life. It's a characteristic of woman as such, whether she be in the state of marriage or whether she be in the consecrated state. And this transcendental motherhood is otherwise known as the genius of woman. But first story. Adam is in the garden and he's just had Eve created from his side and he's absolutely ecstatic and he says to God, he says, God, thank you, God, thank you. I mean, she is so beautiful. Why did you make her so beautiful? And God says, Adam, it's because I wanted you to love her. Thank you, Lord, thank you. But, but why, why did you make her so stupid? <laughs> because, Adam, I wanted her to love you. <laughs> so, <laughs> Now, that's the only joke, so you better enjoy it. <laughs> now, one, in one way, that seems to be um, disparaging this idea of the genius of woman. But actually, we have to be careful, because the genius of woman isn't precisely a kind of IQ. However, it is a kind of intelligence of some type. Intelligence comes from the word intelligere, to read inwardly. And the genius of woman is an intelligence in this sense. It allows the woman to read inwardly the truth of the human person. Now, this is expressed various ways, it seems to me, in the writings of John Paul II, and also the other particularly important writing is from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith on the Collaboration of Men and Women, which is more or less authored by Cardinal Ratzing of the time. They express the genius of woman in these, these kind of modes, something like this. The ability to see the value of the person. The ability to place the person at the center of considerations. Attunement to what is authentically human. Capacity for the other. To get a handle of that, I think we can 
for just a moment, contrast the fourth and fifth stations of the cross. In the fourth station of the cross, we have Simon of Cyrene. In the fifth, we have Veronica. Both of these come to the aid of Christ, but they come in a different way. At least that's my perception. Simon comes at it as a task, which he manfully completes. Now, it had a a big effect on him, no doubt, because we know that he said in the Gospels to be the father of Alexander and Rufus. So they are obviously our early Christians, known to the community. So it must have had a profound effect on him, but he comes at it as a task. Veronica, on the other hand, comes at it very personally. She's able to cut through all the gore, all the noise, and get directly to the person. To put it this way, I would say she's able to put the person at the center of the canvas. And this, I think, is useful in understanding what we mean by the genius of woman. Now, it flows from physical motherhood, but it goes beyond that. Physical motherhood is physical capacity for a person. It's space for a person. And this has a psychological and a spiritual resonance which makes the woman psychologically and spiritually attuned to the person. It doesn't require that the person actually become physically a mother because it's kind of written into what a woman is, capacity for the person. It's also important to notice that these values, placing the person at center, these are human values. It's not that they're only values for women, it's that the woman has the attunement to these values. Um, it's perhaps in that sense like a charism. The Franciscans have a charism for poverty, but it's not that poverty is only for the Franciscans, it's a value for the Dominicans and for the Jesuits also. But they have been given a special gift to see the value of that. And this is, I think, analogous to the genius of woman. The, the value of the person is placed at the center, it's a human value, but they have a particular attunement to it. We see later on, at the end of the Stations of the Cross, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They come, it seems to me, to the body of Christ, the dead body of Christ, in a very personal way, the way they take care of it. So they're living that value, but it's clear, it seems to me, that Veronica blazes the trail because of her genius as a woman. Okay, good. So I think now I have all my ducks in a row, as you say, on this side of the pond. That was a second minor joke there. Um, Okay, I can lay before you, I suppose, what what I think the thesis is. It goes something like this. The principles for understanding the ecclesial vocation of a woman are determined by her consecration in baptism as priest, prophet, and king, but they will be expressed in a distinctively feminine way marked by motherhood, be that natural motherhood, motherhood of the supernatural order, or simply this transcendental motherhood. And so my task now, as I see it, is to step through these offices, are going to go king, priest, and prophet, and say something about the feminine sort of flavor in which they might be lived. It's suggestions. It's like a serving suggestion. Yeah? It's not exhaustive. And I will rely where I can on the insights of John Paul II. So you know where we're going? Good. But even if you don't, we're going there. Okay. <laughs> The kingly office. What is the kingly office? The kingly office summarizes, it seems to me, in the Our Father. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This is what the kingly office, our share in the kingship of Christ, entails, that we try to conform society to the kingdom. Now, this is two elements. One is bringing the temporal order under the reign of Christ. The other is evangelization inviting people into personal relationship with Christ. Now, in that regard, listen to this quote for a moment. This is from um, Evangelii Nunciandi from Paul VI. He says this, lay people whose particular vocation places them in the midst of the world and in charge of the most varied tasks must, for this reason, exercise a very special form of evangelization. Their primary and immediate task is not to establish and develop the ecclesial community. This is the specific role of the pastors, but to put to use every Christian and evangelical possibility 
latent but already present and active in the affairs of the world. What I would like to concentrate on for a moment is this. Their primary, the laity's primary and immediate task is not to establish and develop the ecclesial community. This is the specific role of the pastors, but to put to use every opportunity there is for evangelization. I think that that jars a bit on the year of 2016. Uh, because of something which has happened over the last 30, 40 years perhaps, and this is the following. There has been a waxing of lay ecclesial ministry with a waning of lay apostolate. Lay ecclesial ministry, which is on the up, I take to be activity ad intra in the church, collaborating in normally a subordinate mode with the pastors. It can be part-time, it can be Eucharist, extraordinary Eucharistic minister, lector, worship at mass. It can be full-time more and more. And in fact, in that, women dominate, in the United States at least, 87% of full-time lay ecclesial ministers are women. Lay apostolate, on the other hand, is ad extra. It's not simply an activity as an extension of the hierarchy, but it's Christians taking initiative in the world to try and bring Christ to others or trying to conform the world to Christian values. And as I say, lay ecclesial ministry has waxed, lay apostolate has waned. Now, there's several reasons for this. One reason is fewer priests, and so there's a kind of more of a kind of vacuum, you might say, in the church, which draws people more into activity inside the church. Another reason is probably a loss of evangelical zeal. If you think that every other religion is a way to salvation, and anyway, everybody's an anonymous Christian, this is gonna take the impetus away from lay apostolate, and then the activity will tend to draw back into activity in the church. I think there's a misunderstanding of the goal of us as laity. The goal is Christendom, that every aspect of the culture would be penetrated by the faith. The First Amendment is the best we can get away with at the moment, but it's really about leaving each other alone. That's not the final goal. Now, of course, there's also positive reasons for the growth in lay ecclesial ministry, surely the Holy Spirit. Paul VI also, by dissolving the minor orders, opened up things like lector and acolyte to laypersons. And there's also, of course, the Vatican Council called to a greater participation of the lay faithful in the liturgy. But, okay, there's things to be said on both sides, but this is the point I want to make, the initial point I want to make. Lay ecclesial ministry is extraordinary. It's not the norm in ecclesial ministry. And if it's part-time, it always has to be considered a hobby compared to the main job which is the lay apostolate activity out in the world. This is clearly the approach of the Second Vatican Council. If you read the document on the laity, Apostolicum Atucitatum, it clearly makes this point about the lay apostolate. And in Christopher Daly's Leci, John Paul II warns us of two dangers for the lay person. He says, in particular, two temptations can be cited which the laity have not always known how to avoid. A, the temptation of being so strongly interested in church services and tasks that some fail to become actively engaged in their responsibilities in the professional, social, cultural, and political world. And B, the temptation of legitimizing an unwarranted separation of faith from life. So it was clear in John Paul II's mind that there was this danger going on. Too much attention of the laity to activity in the church in detriment to activity outside the church. And I think if we can psychologically flip that and see where the ecclesial vocation of the layperson really lies, 
it somewhat lances the boil of frustration that women and some laymen feel about opportunities of operating within the church. Okay, everything I've said so far is regard to just the kingly mission period. Now I'm just gonna see if I can say something about how the kingly mission might be lived in a particularly feminine mode. The first and most decisive contribution to society by the woman is in the home because the home and the family is the basic cell of society. And as healthy as the cells are, that is how healthy the body is. As healthy the family is, that is how healthy our societies are. William Wallace, not the great warrior Braveheart, but the, um, I wouldn't bring him in because he's Scottish. Um, uh, I mean the American poet, famously said, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Now, there's a deep truth in that. The future of humanity passes by way of the family, says John Paul II. The future of humanity passes by way of the mother in particular. But there's also something dangerous about that little poem because it seems to give the impression that once the nursery years are over and the hand is no longer rocking the cradle, job is done. But the truth is, the job for the mother probably will take the best years of her life and the primary energies because the point, the goal is this, to build Christendom in the little society called the Newton household, called the Ashy household, called the Wolstein household. We haven't got control over the nation, but we do have control over those little nations that make up the nation. And Christendom is the goal, a culture fully penetrated with the values and the love of Christ. I would say there probably is no more important task in the church period than that task at this time in the West. If our church is gonna survive into the generations to come in the West, it is gonna survive through that radical call accepted by mothers and fathers in the, in, in the family. Now, this of course, this activity in the home is collaborative, and I'm gonna concentrate in my little talk mostly on what is the vocation for women, but keep in the back of your mind that it's always collaborative. The church is very clear, we, ex we have to avoid two problems here. We have to involve the idea of interchangeability of men and women, and we have to avoid the idea of antagonism. Yeah? Collaboration and communion is the hermeneutic. But that said, it's still the case that the mother, I think, has a more decisive role in bringing Christendom to the home. Why? Because she fundamentally is the home. Her womb was the first home. And the house is always somehow an extension of that. Or to put it another way, the children were in her, and therefore somehow she's more in them. She has a privileged access to their hearts. And in this educative mission, to borrow a phrase from Cardinal Newman, it is heart speaks to heart. And therefore the woman has this particular privileged authority. That said, of course, a woman's role is not complete in the home. Women have always worked in the economy and women have always had some role in the political environment. But the key then is this, when they leave the home, they must bring the home with them. That seems to me to be the fundamental principle that John Paul II elucidates again and again. Ladies, you are called to be snails. They always bring their home with them, yeah? <laughs> the point is this, that the Life of the economy is feral, and it needs to be domesticated. And the presence of women in the economy is meant to domesticate it, 
to put again the person and the family at the center of the economic life. Or as John Paul II says in the letter to women, to establish economic and political structures ever more worthy of humanity is one of the key tasks of the genius of women. What's the problem? The problem is this, we no longer live in a patriarchal culture. It is impossible for our culture to be patriarchal when 25% of kids don't know or live with their father. And in some ethnic groups, up to 80%. How on earth can that be patriarchal? But it is still, to borrow a phrase from James Brown, a man's world. Because it's a technocratic world, hell-bent on domination of nature for the sake of private gain. This is a fallen male world. Men have a genius. Whoa, there you go. You didn't know that, did you? <laughs> Men have a genius. And if we were to take the book of Genesis, it would seem to be to be able to subdue the world for the sake of the common good and the good of the family. I would express it something like that. When it is fallen, it becomes domination for private gain. And into that fallen male world, there needs to be the balance of the feminine genius to put again the person and the family at the center of economic activity. The Industrial Revolution fractured the fundamental relationship between the family and economy. Until then, the family was the locus of economic life and the economy danced to the tune of the family. Now the family is asked to dance to the tune of the economy. Hence, when women enter into economic life, they have to retain their fundamental relationship to motherhood. Otherwise, they don't help us at all. Otherwise, they will not put the family back as the central principle of economic decisions. Something similar can be said about when women enter into the political realm. John Paul II seems to say that they in particular bring a pacifying and conciliatory influence. They're a corrective to the male temptation to assert himself for the sake of power. Seven rings were given to the dwarf lords. Nine were given to the race of men who above all desire power. My kids have got Lord of the Rings top trumps. And I noticed the other day playing them that the female figures in the top trumps always score very low on ferocity and always very high on resistance to the ring. Yeah? <laughs> this seems to be an intuition on Tolkien's part, yeah? Because the ring is the desire for power. And women, I think, help men to work together without men having to assert themselves vis-a-vis -vis each other. And this would be very, very helpful in the political realm, it would be very, very helpful in any organization. A friend of mine said he once read a master's degree, a master's thesis on why covenant communities collapsed. Catholic covenant communities collapsed, and the chief reason was male power struggles. Yeah, I can, I can believe it, yeah. It makes me wonder, maybe that's why Jesus had those women close to him, following him around. Salome, Joanna, Mary, the wife of Cleopas. Because he had some men following him who were worried about the question of who was the greatest. I don't know, I'm speculating, yeah? But I think they would bring that, that softening influence. Why that softening influence? Because, as John Paul II says, women hold the primary place in love. Not that they love more, but they evoke love. They kick start the process of loving. Just see it with Adam and Eve. Soon as Eve is created, it kick starts in Adam an impulse of love, and that softens a man's heart. 
Yeah? And this can be very, very useful. But the women then have to enter if they're going to live their ecclesial vocation in the world as women. I remember being very perplexed as a young boy that my grandmother detested Margaret Thatcher. And if none of you know Margaret Thatcher is, very quickly, first female British Prime Minister. I would have thought, and I couldn't understand at the time, why does she not admire Margaret Thatcher? She's really blazed the trail for women there. First premier female of any Western country. But my mother, my grandmother hated her. And it was a, a, a source of tension with my grandfather, who was a lifelong Conservative Party campaigner. So it caused a problem there. Um, but I came to realize just recently, I think it was this. My grandmother felt betrayed. Because when this woman entered into the political realm, it wasn't at all clear that she brought her femininity with her. And there was a sense of betrayal, I think, therefore, for my grandmother. Okay. What's the implications of this for you here? The implications are this. You have your feminine genius and you have to hold on to it, but you also need competency. Part of the ecclesial vocation is to become what's called in the world of espionage, agents of influence, sacred subversion of the nation. Agents of influence, they don't steal documents. They just take up positions of influence and just by their attitude, they change the values of those around them in favor of the country which has planted them there. It really is a task, I think, for you who have the talent, ladies, to gain that competency, to take positions where you can influence teachers, head teachers, head of a nursing group, Now, dare I say, and I'm a little bit partisan here, that does mean that one way right here you start to fulfill your ecclesial vocation is to study hard. It really is. You meant to sort of do a round of applause there. No, no, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, the VPAA is doing a round of applause. That's, that's very partisan. Okay. Now, we said the kingly mission is, first of all, about impregnating the culture with Christian values. It's leaven, but also evangelization. It is light. And I think the feminine genius also has something clear to offer here. I think it reminds us of this, that fundamentally, evangelization, particularly the new evangelization, is about a personal encounter with Christ and a personal invitation to another to follow Christ. Again, this personal sensitivity seems to me to be central. I think we see that, for example, in the figure of Saint Photony. Did you know the, the woman at the well is Saint Photony? She's revered in the Orthodox Church. Baptized at Pentecost, died a martyr under Nero, according to the Orthodox tradition. Okay. I mean, this is, this is what's happening here, personal encounter. She's the first evangelist mentioned in the Gospel of John. So she's the prototype evangelist. She encounters Jesus personally. We know this for several reasons. She leaves her water jar at the well when she goes back to speak to the men. She's no longer drinking natural water. She's already imbibing the spiritual water that Christ has promised. We see that the well is hexagonal. That symbolizes the five husbands plus the man she's now living with. Christ is the seventh and perfect husband. This is a Jacob's well. Jacob met his wife at a well. Yeah? So the symbolism is very rich there, that she's come into a personal encounter. Then she goes off and issues a very simple personal invitation, come and see. Now, none of this is to disparage projects, and systems, though I think they are more male, I think it's just remind us of the spark of the feminine genius, that the new evangelization is person by person. Same situation, Mary with Elizabeth, Mary Magdalene, personal encounter at the tomb, personal invitation to the apostles. From the womb to the tomb, the same message. Personal encounter, personal invitation. 
Okay, good. Let's move then on to the priesthood. As soon as we talk about the priesthood and the share that women have in the priestly office of Christ, we do have to distinguish between the common priesthood and the ministerial. The common priesthood is about offering spiritual sacrifices out of the matter of our mundane life. The ministerial priesthood is about acting in the person of Christ, being able to confect the Eucharist and absolve from sin. Therefore, these are two fundamentally different realities, not different in degree, but different in type. Seems to me that two um, divine decisions, divine decisions, do fundamentally exclude women from the ministerial priesthood. The first is that God decided to attach to human sexuality and human distinction a key place in revelation. It's undeniable if you read the Old Testament. The second decision is that he decided to empower the New Testament priest to be able to act in the person of Christ. If you put those two together, it comes to this. Christ comes as the bridegroom and the priest acts in the person of Christ, the bridegroom. That's the fundamental theological rationale for the reservation of the priesthood, ministerial priesthood to men. But there is a third choice made by Christ. The third choice is to link the sacramental order with the juridical order. To those whom he said, do this in memory of me, making a priest, he said, whatever so you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. He gave juridical power in his church. He linked ruling with holiness. And the result is that this does exclude all women and all laymen from tasks in the church which involve legislating and judging legislation. Now, none of this is rational. We know that women, as well as men, have the skills it takes to be pastorally sensitive. But the point is that the church is not a rationally established society. C.S. Lewis tried to get at this in his own particular way by quoting Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. He says this, quoting Caroline Bingley, I should like balls infinitely better, said Caroline Bingley, if they were carried out in a different manner. It would surely be much more rational if conversation instead of dancing made the order of the day. Much more rational, I dare say, replied her brother, but it would not be near so much like a ball. I think Lewis's point is this, that it would perhaps be more rational were women allowed to be priests, but then the church would not be near so much like a divinely established society. So we just have to face the fact that women and laymen, including myself, are excluded from a range of activities in the church. And yet, quite a range remains. Anything which does not require power to legislate and to judge legislation is open, it seems to me, to laymen and therefore also potentially laywomen. I'm not saying that's how the canon law is set up now. I'm just saying that seems to be a fundamental principle. Therefore, there doesn't seem to be any particular reason why a woman couldn't be the president of a pontifical council, a rector of a pontifical institute, in fact, I think it already has happened, a peritus at an ecumenical council, perhaps even a cardinal, but I'll discuss that in one of my uh, side talks. In addition, the coming out of hibernation of the charismatic dimension of the church opens up great vistas of activity for laypersons. Because the charismatic dimension, not being sacramental, has not been linked by Christ to the juridical order. And that's why we see in these new communities, quite often, very, very high-profile female leaders. For example, uh, Chiara Lube in Focolari, Herman Hernandez in the Neocatechumenum Way, Mart Robin in Foy de Charity, the current head of the International Catholic Charismatic Renewal is a woman, uh, Michelle Moran. We should also remember that there are fundamentally two types of authority in any organization. There is formal authority and there is prophetic authority. 
And sometimes actually you have to be explicitly excluded from formal authority to exercise prophetic authority. Because when you're in formal authority, you have a kind of co-responsibility to think like and talk like the others who are holding leadership. And it seems to me that's partly the reason why God in the old Israel structured things so that there was a king and there was a prophet, formal authority and prophetic authority. And there's many couplets we can see in the divided kingdom, David and Nathaniel, Ahab and Elijah. If you read 1 Kings, who's in charge of Israel? Ahab or Elijah? It's a close call. If I was to think over the last 30 years of the great leaders in our church, formal, prophetic, I personally would go for a man, formal, and a woman, prophetic. Mother Teresa showing the way. And anyway, let's remember, it's always a bit embarrassing to talk about authority and power in the church. As Cardinal Ratzinger made the point, when discussions blew up about the power of the universal church and the particular church, the church and Christ in our day go again to Calvary. And here we are arguing about who should sit at the right and who should sit at the left. We always needed a bit of caution there, it seems. Okay, so it's clear that ministerial priesthood is reserved for men, and yet women have several unique ways to live out the common priesthood by natural motherhood and by motherhood of the supernatural order. We've said already that the common priesthood works like this. We take the mundane things of this life and we elevate them as spiritual sacrifices. Very analogous to the priest who takes the mundane things from the field, the bread and the wine, and he elevates them to offer them to God. And boy, does the mother have a lot of raw material to elevate. The seven corporal works of mercy. If you're getting bored, see if you can spot all seven before I flitch the, the slide over in a few minutes. Um, there'll be bananas and other snacks free for all those who get more than six. Okay. The Corporal works of mercy are at the fingertips of every mother to feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, shelter the unsheltered, tend to the sick, and even to bury the dead. How many couples are there who have not had a child die in utero or after birth and have had not to bury their child? And then there are the spiritual works of mercy, instructing the ignorant, and there she's got a husband as well as her child as matter, yeah? Yeah? Counsel the doubtful, admonish the sinner, husband again. Bear wrongs patiently, husband again. Forgive sins, I mean, it's endless. Pope Francis has challenged us to perform one corporal work of mercy a day in this year of mercy. It's my impression that the average mother does one every five minutes. It is said that the devil is in the detail, but that is nonsense. The Lord is in the detail, and the ecclesial vocation is in the detail. Again, I think we have to have a paradigm shift to see where the heart of the ecclesial mission is. And all of this that is open to the mother is after she's given birth. If I was to pick one verse of scripture which summarizes the common priesthood, it will be Romans 12.1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Who offers their body as a living sacrifice to the Lord more than the mother? Maybe the martyr. I don't know. But in this, ladies, I've got some bad news for you who you are mothers. Despite the application of anti-wrinkle cream, <laughs> all stretch marks and cesarean scars will be present in the glorified body. 
just as Christ's nail marks are present in the glorified body, glorified as trophies of his love. I've saved you money there. I can throw that cream away. <laughs> okay. The consecrated life, motherhood of the supernatural order, also shares something in the priestly sense. And this, I think, is the mediatory characteristic of priesthood. The priest mediates divine life to us through the sacraments, and therefore we call him father. The consecrated virgin or consecrated woman mediates divine life to us through her divine communion with her spouse. She opens herself up to her spouse, she becomes fruitful in that union with her spouse, and she gives birth to children, and therefore we call her mother. This is the hypostatic principle. According to St. Thomas, the smallest act of love by Christ would have been enough to save us because he is hypostatically united. His humanity is hypostatically united to God. We cannot be hypostatically united, but we can be spiritually united. And from that comes all our fruits. Here it is. I think the icon of the consecrated virgin, all she's doing is raising her arms in prayer to God, and in her, doing all the work, is Christ. With one hand, he is blessing. With the other, he has a scroll he is teaching. It's often said that the church is the bark of Peter. If this is the case, then it is navigated by clerics, but powered by nuns. If your ministry is more fruitful than your holiness, it's because you are plucking fruit from another's branch. And I bet you that branch is the branch of a consecrated sister. The prophetic office. Women we've seen are clearly prophetic amongst a range of things. We've seen already when we considered the kingly office that they have some clear message to society to put the person and the family back in the center. But there's one, I think, prophetic characteristic which runs like a watermark through all of those three motherhoods, the natural, the supernatural, and the transcendental. And this is the message of extravagant love. I think it's a fundamental part of the genius of woman. To get a handle on this, let us turn to Mary of Bethany anointing the feet, the feet of Christ. The feminine genius and its generosity is put in contrast by the hostility of the male characters. Some translations say they snorted at her when she breaks this expensive jar of perfume and anoints the Lord's feet. I particularly like in this one the monk the Dominican monk on the side, yeah? It seems to me that he's struck by what's going on. Struck because he's seen through this event the heart of the ecclesial vocation. It seems also that, at least in Mark's gospel, he really highlights this moment. He sandwiches it between two betrayals. The verse before is the rejection of the elders, the verse after is the betrayal of Judas. Mark has Jesus personally praise the woman. Only two people are personally praised by Christ in Mark's gospel. This woman and a woman two chapters earlier who also poured out all that she had in two small coins. The feminine genius of extravagant love. Mark doesn't give this woman a name. We only know it's Mary from John's Gospel. And I think this is because he wants to push home to us that this is something for all believers. All believers have to recognize that the only adequate response to the one who will allow his own body to be shattered so his life would be poured out into the house of the church is that we also 
pour out our lives in extravagant love. It seems to me that the consecrated life turns this extravagant love into an art form. How often have we heard when a pretty, intelligent, lively girl decides to enter the religious life, what a waste. It is a waste. It's a life wasted on the Lord. And in that respect, it's a message to us all. And of course, the same derision is sometimes poured out on natural motherhood, even by women themselves who say, I'm not going to waste my life looking after snotty-nosed kids and changing diapers. I'm going to make something of myself. And how often has a mother of a newborn child been caught in this situation? The child is finally asleep. She dares not put the child down. And yet all the chores come crowding in, all the things she's got to do. But her feminine genius comes to the rescue. She sees that she has chosen the better part, simply to remain with the child and to love the child. That, after all, is the heart of the mission. So, let me finish with that lesson of the feminine genius ringing in our ears. The lesson of extravagant love is the central ecclesial mission. It means this, that if you are seeking God with all your strength, if you are seeking communion with him, then right here, right now, you are already living the heart of the ecclesial vocation. The entire ministerial priesthood, the whole hierarchy, Every article of canon law is ordered towards supporting you in striving for communion with God and with holiness. What the world lacks, above all, is people who will waste themselves on the Lord. And so I say to you, as Augustine says, love and do what you will, but for the sake of society, for the good of the church, Please do it in a feminine way. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.